As a boy, I was lucky enough to live on the outskirts of Valley Forge Park in Pennsylvania, and for five or six years it became my backyard playground. I would follow animal tracks, fish the streams with my friends, and sled down Anthony Wayne Hill in the winters. We knew the log huts, the fortifications, Washington's headquarters, and even hidden caves in the heavily forested hills where Washington had hidden various stores of cannon and supplies in case of attack from the British, who were living it up in Philadelphia, 30 miles away, while our colonial troops froze and starved through that hard winter of 1777-1778. We lived in a neighborhood called Glen Hardy, the streets of which were named after the heroes of that bleak winter, names like Colonel DeWee's Lane, Anthony Wayne Road, and Baron von Steuben Road. From Glen Hardy we would pull our sleds down Thomas Road and then start across the rolling fields of Valley Forge where Baron von Steuben had trained Washington soldiers, men who, in the past months, had gone up against the most powerful army on earth at that time and lost. Lost in New York and Long Island and lost at Brandywine, yet still they hung on. They were farmers and patriots fighting for the cause of freedom, very few of them professional soldiers. In the face of highly trained British troops, they had broken and run. They needed the discipline and tactics that could stand up to the kind of armies that Britain or France or Prussia could put in the field. When von Steuben came, he brought with him the knowledge of military training and spirit that they badly needed. Ben Franklin had sent them a huge gift. Washington could sense it when he met von Steuben. This man was a winner. He was the right man at the right place at the right time. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode, titled Baron von Steuben, The Man Who Saved the American Revolution, is from our Heroes series, and by every measure, this Prussian-born soldier was an American hero. This is his story. On February 23, 1778, George Washington rode out of Valley Forge to meet Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. According to reports from Benjamin Franklin, writing from his post in France, Steuben was a lieutenant general from a noble Prussian family who had served his ruler, Frederick the Great, faithfully on the battlefield, and who now lived on income from his numerous estates. While the many Americans who feted Baron von Steuben from Portsmouth to Boston and finally to York, Pennsylvania, might have been impressed with his credentials, George Washington was more taken with the general's sincerity. As von Steuben explained in a recent letter to Washington, the only object of his greatest ambition was to render your country all the services in my power and to deserve the title of the citizen of America by fighting for your cause of liberty. When he finally met von Steuben on the road from York, Washington was not disappointed. Even though the baron was dressed in the crisp uniform of a Prussian general with a jeweled medallion across his chest, he still only had a small entourage with him, including a secretary, a servant, and his beloved Italian greyhound dog, Azor. Washington later learned that Steuben had only risen to the rank of major, yet his training and knowledge was superb. Born a commoner in 1730, Captain Steuben served on the general staff of Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War. After the war ended, Steuben was dismissed from the army when Frederick the Great drastically reduced military spending. For the next 12 years, Steuben worked as the chamberlain of the kingdom of Hohenzollern-Hetchingen. By the mid-1770s, he had restyled himself as a baron, but was in fact desperate for money and a better position. At this low point in his life, Steuben met Benjamin Franklin in Paris, who recognized him as an experienced soldier who could bring order to the Continental Army. 
Upon Washington's recommendation, Congress appointed Steuben as a major general and the inspector general of the Continental Army. He went out into the camp to talk with the officers and men, inspect their huts, and scrutinize their equipment. Steuben established standards of sanitation and camp layouts that would still be standard a century and a half later. There had previously been no set arrangement of tents and huts. Men relieved themselves where they wished, and when an animal died, it was stripped of its meat and the rest was left to rot where it lay. Steuben laid out a plan to have rows for command, officers and enlisted men. Kitchens and latrines were on opposite sides of the camp, with latrines downhill side. There was the familiar arrangement of company and regimental streets. Less than two months after von Steuben's arrival, on May 5, 1778, on General Washington's recommendation, Congress appointed Steuben Inspector General of the Army with the rank and pay of Major General. Internal administration had been neglected, and no books had been kept either as to supplies, clothing, or men. Steuben became aware of the, quote, administrative incompetence, graft, war profiteering, unquote, that existed. He enforced the keeping of exact records and strict inspections. His inspections saved the Army an estimated loss of five to 8,000 muskets. The following is from allthingsliberty.com. Von Steuben was initially without official rank or position in Washington's Army and spent his first few weeks at Valley Forge going all over the camp and talking with soldiers through interpreters. He barely spoke English. He soon realized that the Continental Army relied more on initiative and flexibility than the British, and that American soldiers followed leaders out of respect, not blind obedience. He understood that British methods for drill and discipline, with their roots in European class hierarchies, would never be fully effective in the more egalitarian American society. Another part of the problem with the Continentals, he also realized, was that most officers left drill and discipline to sergeants in the British Army manner. Luckily, von Steuben had a keen understanding of how to train soldiers because he cut his teeth leading drill as a young Prussian officer cadet. And with the need for training and a competent inspector general, he was truly the right man in the right place at the right time. Von Steuben began his training program immediately with a model company composed of men picked from each brigade in the Army. He created a standard method of drill by combining and streamlining the most effective aspects of European tactics. Then he taught his drill techniques to the soldiers of the model company, beginning with the basics of standing and facing, then marching with a uniform speed and step, then combining all the skills while in ranks. Steuben took care to explain the importance of the tasks which helped his students learn, quote, the Prussian exercise, unquote, as they called it. Although the instruction included the manual exercise for musket handling and bayonet use, Steuben's primary emphasis was on maneuvering. A natural showman, the barrel-chested baron exuded confidence as he instructed the troops with the aid of a silver-tipped swagger stick and was an immediate hit with the Americans. The training methods made the most of Steuben's drill master skills and perfectly suited the somewhat independent character of the American soldier. According to legend, von Steuben had to rely mostly upon an interpreter at first, but soon was able to mix popular English curse words with commands. Steuben trained at an aggressive pace, faster than that in most European armies. After the entire model company mastered the techniques, he expanded the program to the Army's brigades with the help of newly appointed sub-inspectors. In early April, barely a month after beginning the program, entire regiments were successfully drilling as whole units. The program so impressed Washington that he banned all other drill until Steuben's methods could proliferate throughout the Army. Morale soared as the soldiers gained confidence. 
quote, discipline flourishes and daily improves under the indefatigable efforts of Baron von Steuben, who is much esteemed by us, unquote, wrote the veteran Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Scammell in April. Some believe that any of the European officer volunteers could have done the same thing as Steuben, but that was a superficial consideration of training. It was Steuben's unique combination of perspective, personality, adaptability, dedication, and experience that enabled him to train an entire army in such a short span of time. Tangible proof of the value of Steuben's training came on May 20, 1778, when a force of 2,000 men under Brigadier General Lafayette was out scouting lines near Philadelphia. About 10,000 British troops forayed out to corner the Americans, but Lafayette avoided the trap using maneuvers that would have been beyond the Continental's capabilities before Steuben's training. When signal guns alerted the rest of the army at Valley Forge to Lafayette's predicament, it took only 15 minutes for the Continentals to fall out of their huts, prepare for action, and form a line of battle. Steuben picked 120 men from various regiments to form an honor guard for General Washington and used them to demonstrate military training to the rest of the troops. These men in turn trained other personnel at regimental and brigade levels. Steuben's eccentric personality greatly enhanced his mystique. In full military dress uniform, he twice a day trained the soldiers who, at this point, were themselves greatly lacking in proper clothing. As he could not speak or write English, Steuben originally wrote the drills in French, the military language of Europe at the time. His secretary, Duponceau, then translated the drills from French into English. Colonel Alexander Hamilton and General Nathaniel Green were of great help in assisting Steuben in drafting a training program for the Army. The Baron's willingness and ability to work with the men, as well as his use of profanity in several different languages, made him very popular among the soldiers. Steuben introduced a system of progressive training, beginning with the school of the soldier, with and without arms, and going through the school of the regiment. This corrected the previous policy of simply assigning personnel to regiments. Each company commander was made responsible for the training of new men, but actual instruction was done by sergeants specifically selected for being the best obtainable. In the earlier part of the war, Americans used the bayonet mostly as a cooking skewer or tool, rather than as a fighting instrument. Steuben's introduction of effective bayonet charges became crucial. In the Battle of Stony Point, American soldiers attacked with unloaded muskets and won the battle solely on Steuben's bayonet training. The Battle of Stony Point took place on July 16, 1779, in a well-planned nighttime attack. A highly trained select group of George Washington's Continental Army troops under the command of General Mad Anthony Wayne defeated British troops in a quick and daring assault on their outpost in Stony Point, New York, approximately 30 miles north of New York City. The British suffered heavy losses in a battle that served as a huge victory in terms of morale for the Continental Army. While the fort was ordered evacuated quickly after the battle by General Washington, his key crossing site was used later in the war by units of the Continental Army to cross the Hudson River on their way to victory over the British. Some of the captured officers were exchanged immediately after the battle, but the more than 400 prisoners of other ranks were marched off to a prison camp at Easton, Pennsylvania. An unsuccessful attempt by a small number of prisoners on July 17th to overpower their captors resulted in one British sergeant killed and about 20 other ranks wounded. Contemporary Patriot accounts note that Wayne had given quarter to the garrison of Stody Point, despite the alleged treatment of his own men at the Paoli Massacre in 1777. The Battle of Paoli, also known as the Battle of Paoli Tavern or the Paoli Massacre, 
was a battle in the Philadelphia campaign fought on September 20th, 1777 in the area surrounding present-day Malvern, Pennsylvania. Following the American retreats at the Battle of Brandywine and the Battle of the Clouds, George Washington left a force under the command of Brigadier General Anthony Wayne behind in order to monitor and harass the British as they prepared to move on the revolutionary capital of Philadelphia. On the evening of September 20th, British forces under the command of General Charles Gray led a surprise attack on Wayne's encampment near the Paoli Tavern. Although there were relatively few American casualties, claims were made that the British took no prisoners and granted no quarter, and the engagement became known as the Paoli Massacre. Now, in 1778, with his army emerging from winter quarters at Valley Forge, where it had been tirelessly trained by Baron von Steuben, Washington sought to engage Clinton, the general commanding a regiment of British troops moving from Philadelphia to New York before he could reach the safety of New York. While many of Washington's officers, including General Wayne and Lafayette, favored this aggressive approach, it was strenuously objected to by Major General Charles Lee. A recently released prisoner of war and adversary of Washington's, Lee argued that the French alliance meant victory in the long run and that it was foolish to commit the army to battle unless they had overwhelming superiority. Weighing the arguments, Washington elected to pursue Clinton. Washington had seen the value of Lee's experience and trusted his advice, a mistake which the Continental Army would pay for dearly. Arriving at Hopewell, New Jersey on June 23rd, Washington held a council of war. Lee once again argued against a major attack, this time swaying his commander. Washington decided instead to send a force of 4,000 men to harass Clinton's rear guard. Lacking confidence in the plan, Lee turned down command of this force, and it was given to the Marquis de Lafayette. Later in the day, on the 16th, Washington enlarged the force to 5,000. Upon hearing this, Lee returned to Washington and demanded that he be given command, which he received with strict orders that he was to hold a meeting of his officers to determine the plan of attack. At 3 p.m. on June 17, 1778, the day before the Battle of Monmouth, Washington was on the road from Cranberry to Englishtown, New Jersey. He was passing men lying on their backs in creeks, more dead than alive from the heat. Six months ago, these same men were freezing at Valley Forge. Arriving at Englishtown, Washington was surprised to see General Lee and his staff emerging from the local tavern. Washington questioned him. I thought this army was moving to attack now, today, to which Lee answered, Cornwallis has a division not six miles from here, and they're not moving. Why are you not pressing them, General? said Washington. Because I'm following your orders, sir, Lee replied. Washington, at that moment, felt a pang of regret for not keeping Lafayette at the head of this advance guard. Lafayette would have pressed on. Lee continued pointing on his map. Clinton has gone to ground here, west of Monmouth, on good high ground with clear fields of fire. I caution against assault. Knowing that the British Army was not putting up fortifications to defend the ground, its aim being to reach the shore to load the men on troop ships. Washington was running out of time to catch the British in his trap, and now Lee had just cost him a precious day. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. 
You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. The orders Washington gave Lee read like this, as noted by Alexander Hamilton, one of Washington's most trusted officers. Your orders, Lee, are as follows. I expect your advance guard to have broken camp before dawn, be completely formed and on the road. You are to advance with all possible speed directly upon the British forces now encamped on the high ground west of the Monmouth Courthouse. Whether they are preparing to move or not, you are to attack with alacrity and elan, your regiments properly employed into battle order as they have been trained to do this past winter. You are to bring about a general engagement regardless of enemy disposition, be they preparing to retreat or hold high ground, as you described. The main body of the army shall be on the road before dawn, coming forward with all possible speed. By your bringing about a general engagement, the enemy will be fixed in position, and the forces with me shall fall upon their flank and rear. Washington knew at this point that his men were ready, thanks to von Steuben's training, and they had all the tools in place to hand the British a resounding defeat. According to the book Valley Forge by Newt Gingrich and William Forstchen, Washington then looked at Lee as Lee said, You do realize, sir, that the combined forces of the enemy equal and perhaps exceed our own? Washington responded, slapping the table with his hand, Our men are trained. After so many months of suffering at Valley Forge, they are ready for a fight. Generally, they are eager for the fight to prove that they have endured a frozen hell, have been reforged, and will now stand and face the enemy. And you, General Lee, will have the honor to lead the way. The heat was stifling. Men and horses were dropping. At 8 a.m. on the morning of the day of the battle, von Steuben was one mile east of Englishtown, having spent the night scouting the enemy's line of march. Early in the morning hours, he had taken a wide loop around Niphausen's column, which was on the move at 3 a.m., he was shocked to see that Lee was still at Englishtown with his 5,000 men, which included the only cavalry in Washington's army. He spotted an officer he knew and asked what his orders were, and the answer was that they were to probe forward cautiously and await developments. Von Steuben was beside himself with rage. It was already hot now at 8.30, and the army had lost precious time. Meanwhile, Lee's army, which was supposed to be bringing the fight to the British, was floundering in confusion as Lee, now facing a determined British force, became paralyzed with fear and, much to the anguish of his commanders, began to order a retreat. As Washington approached according to plan, he began to see elements of Lee's army approaching his and started asking questions. At this point, realizing that Lee had not yet engaged the enemy, a terrible rage began to well up within him. The following follows the excellent research you'll find at mountvernon.org concerning the Battle of Monmouth. George Washington prided himself on his ability to control his temper. Few people beyond his immediate family and closest aides ever saw him lose his composure. But on the afternoon of June 28, 1778, Washington exploded in rage at his second-in-command, General Charles Lee, in a moment that became legendary among the officers who were present. An excellent description of the encounter can be found in the book Valley Forge 
by Newt Gingrich and William Forston. As he encountered large elements of Lee's army retreating from the advancing British and received reports from both Lafayette and Wayne as to the situation in the field, Washington ordered both officers to form lines from the available troops to face the enemy, with Wayne assuming command of Lee's troops. Then Washington, in a rage, approached Lee. General Lee! Lee started to raise his hand to remove his hat and salute. In the name of God Almighty, what have you done here? Uh, Sir, as ordered, I... God's wound, sir. I do not believe what I'm seeing. What in the hell are you doing? Uh, Sir, the the situation developed poorly. Poorly? It is you, damn your soul. It is you, sir, who has behaved poorly. Lee recoiled in shock. Sir, I object to that tone. A pent-up rage, a fury that could perhaps be traced back across two years of frustration and defeat, had at last exploded into the open. Washington removed his hat, drew it back as if to strike Lee and then, thinking better, hurled it to the ground. You, General Lee, are a strutting, foul-mouthed, arrogant poltroon. You came to this army boasting of your skills, and I was fool enough to believe you. But the men, sir, they began to break when facing the enemy in an open fight. Damn yourself for your arrogant impudence. How dare you blame these good men for your failings? As almighty God is my witness. Washington looked up at the blazing hot heavens and then back at Lee. This is the last time I shall ever listen to the likes of such strutting, arrogant asses as you. At that point, Washington relieved Lee of command, telling Lee to get the hell out of his sight or he would personally whip him off the field. Washington then turned to the throng of soldiers who had witnessed the confrontation and asked them if they were willing to fight. And they all shouted as one, General Lafayette among them. And they fought, using the battlefield techniques that von Steuben had taught them, and von Steuben was in the thick of it. Washington pulled him from Wayne's command and sent him back to Englishtown to gather up the men who had retreated with Lee to the rear, and after giving Lee his peace of mind, brandishing his sword, gathered up Washington's army and led them back into the fray, shouting, The battle is this way, and I will lead you to it, and there give the lobsters a kick in the ass they will never forget. By 1 p.m. on June 18th, Washington was riding up and down the length of his battle line. The British had moved their artillery up to the opposite ridge on the far side of the ravine and marshy ground beyond and had been pounding his line for an hour. His men were holding. His guns were also firing, taking out British field pieces, and with each hit, his men broke into loud cheers. Riding up to one of his gun batteries, he was stunned to see a woman swabbing the barrel of one of his cannons, her dead husband at her feet, while she shouted to the men around her to stand and fight. And from a 150 yards distant, the best of Clinton and Court Wallace's army began to approach, the drumbeat moving them on, a deadly wave of red-coated muskets and sabers. Washington's line was now a quarter mile across. The supreme test of the Continental Army was at hand. The high brass-capped hats of the British grenadiers were now visible at 75 yards. Men of the season 44th to 23rd, the elite Coldstream Guards, the Welsh Fusiliers, and the most feared of all, the Black Watch, in their dark tartans, the Piper's Plain. Washington's rank, almost to a man, held. The men under Green, Wayne, and Sterling heard the order, poise your muskets, and the rattle of a thousand muskets being lifted filled the air. Take aim! Fire! An explosive, tearing roll thundered along the quarter-mile line, regiment after regiment, paying back with rage the defeats they had suffered from Long Island to Brandywine. The smoke from the first volley covered the field in front of them like a heavy screen as the order to reload went down the line. Some men dropped as the advancing British returned fire, musket balls whizzing by like angry bees. 
The British got off a second volley first, but seconds later the Americans loosed their fire. One of our regiments was using the complex method of half the men firing while the other half reloaded, as von Steuben had taught them, and their fire was taking its toll. The Black Watch had now advanced to within 10 yards and took a full volley head-on, then proceeded to fight with bayonets. The Americans were fighting now with bayonet by using their rifles as clubs and started to press the Black Watch down the hill, with Washington shouting orders for them to hold back and maintain the line. The screams of the wounded and dying filled the battlefield and still the Americans held, out of water and exhausted, fighting in extreme heat. Many had exhausted their 24 rounds of ammunition and were screaming for more. Hot gun barrels were melting skin and it was getting harder and harder to ram musket balls down the superheated barrels. But there was a steady supply of muskets as men dropped all around. The women of the camp were carrying water to the men from behind the lines. In the heat of battle, strange things can happen. Some men tried to urinate down the barrels of their rifles trying to cool them and ended up burning their privates, causing them to jump away, holding themselves, and drawing laughter from the men and women who were nearby. Laughter, cries of pain, the moaning of the wounded and dying, all a part of the insanity of close warfare. By now only a third of their muskets were still firing. General Wayne wanted to leapfrog his spent troops back to be replaced by fresh reserves, but von Steuben had advised that the men standing in reserve might think it was a rout and retreat. Instead, reserves were brought up first, then the men, unable to fight, were slowly brought to the rear. Washington heard cannon fire from the right as Knox's artillery began firing grape shot into the British flanks. Discipline, trained rifle fire kept coming from the American lines. Then came the order to charge bayonets, but the British were leaving the field. Washington wanted to pursue, but his commander said, Our men are all in, General. There's nothing more we can do this day. Washington's men had fought the most powerful army on earth to a standstill. Molly Ludwig Hayes, now known as Molly Pitcher, the woman who Washington saw swabbing the cannons near the body of her fallen husband, delivering water to the exhausted troops and tending to the wounded, was later recognized by General Washington and given a special commendation for her courage and fortitude. After Monmouth, the tide began to turn in favor of Washington and his troops. He had shown tremendous leadership at Monmouth and had bested the British. Von Steuben's training had been crucial to the troops. According to Wikipedia, in 1780, von Steuben sat on the court-martial of the British Army officer Major John Andre, captured and charged with espionage in conjunction with the defection of General Benedict Arnold. He later traveled with Nathaniel Green, the new commander of the Southern Campaign. He quartered in Virginia since the American supplies and soldiers would be provided to the Army from there. During the spring of 1781, he aided Green in the campaign to the south, culminating in the delivery of 450 Virginia Continentals to Lafayette in June. He was forced to take a sick leave, rejoining the Army for the final campaign at Yorktown in 1781, where his role was as a commander of one of the three divisions of Washington's troops. In 1783, General von Steuben joined General Knox at Vale's Gate near West Point, in the fall of 1782 and in early 1783 moved to the Verplank homestead at Mount Gullion across the Hudson River from Washington's headquarters in Newburgh, New York. Steuben gave assistance to Washington in demobilizing the army in 1783 as well as aiding in the defense plan of the new nation. In May of 1783, Steuben presided over the founding of the Society of the Cincinnati. Steuben became an American citizen by act of the Pennsylvania legislature in March of 1784 
In 1790, Congress awarded him with a pension of 2500 a year, which he kept till his death. On December 23, 1783, the state of New Jersey presented him with the use of an estate in Bergen County, now known as the Steuben House, which had been confiscated from Loyalist Jan Zabriskie in 1781. Located in the formerly strategic Newbridge Landing, the estate included a grist mill and about 40 acres of land. Legislators initially conditioned the grant, requiring Steuben to hold, occupy, and enjoy the said estate in person and not by tenant. Possession will be given to you in the spring when you will take a view of the premises. Von Steuben spent considerable sums to repair wartime damages to the house and restore its commercial operations under former aide Walker. Von Steuben moved a few years later to upstate New York and settled in Oneida County on a small estate in the vicinity of Rome on land granted to him for his military service and where he had spent summers. He was later appointed a regent for what evolved into the State University of New York. Von Steuben died on November 28, 1794, and was buried in a grove at what became the Steuben Memorial State Historic Site in a town named Steuben, New York. Steuben was one of four European military leaders who assisted the American cause during the Revolution and was honored with a statue in Lafayette Square, just north of the White House in Washington, D.C. The statue by Albert Jaggers was dedicated in 1910. A copy was dedicated in Potsdam, Germany in 1911 and destroyed during World War II. A new cast was given in honor of German-American friendship in 1987 and to celebrate the 750th anniversary of the founding of Berlin. A bust of Steuben is in the garden of the German Embassy in Washington, D.C. In 2007, a popular documentary DVD was released by Lionheart Filmworks and director Kevin Hirschberger, titled Von Steuben's Continentals, The First American Army. The 60-minute live-action documentary details the life, uniforms, camp life, food, weapons, equipment, and drill of the Continental Soldier, 1775 to 1781 as taught and developed by Baron von Steuben. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all of our episodes at our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com or join us for comments at Facebook at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. We thank you for joining us today. We appreciate all of you who enjoy our episodes in the United States and in 150 other countries around the world. Thank you so much. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.